This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Hello, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being in this session. Uh, I'm uh, Anna Bellion. I'm a professor here at Asade in uh, Economics and Finance. And today we'll talk about uh, laboratory experiments in, um, in economics and finance. And specifically, I'll focus on the idea from theory to experiments. So the plan of the talk today is I'll talk about theory and experiments in uh, economics and finance. The first bit is a general introduction, which stems from a chapter with Rosemary Nagel, who's here for part of the talk. And it's based on a chapter we wrote about Reinhard Selton, the dualist, who's a Nobel Prize in economics, who did a lot of uh, interplay between uh, theory and experiments uh, in economics and finance. And then I'll, I'll talk about an example from my own research and I'll focus mainly on the experimental design because I think that's the part where uh, you can see the challenges and learn more from that. So it's, it's quite a technical topic. It's um, supply function competition, private information and market power, laboratory st study. And then we'll do some concluding remarks at the end of the talk. So the first part will be introductory, then will be more technical, and then we'll conclude at the end. So the first part is based on this book chapter that we wrote with Rosemary. Um, and it's a good introduction to the interplay between theory and experiments. It was based on honor of uh, Reinhard Selton, um, the dualist. And he's called a dualist because of this idea that he worked both in theory and in experiments. So let's start with a couple of quotes, which I think are very motivating. So the first uh, quote is that the structure of bounded rational economic behavior cannot be invented in the armchair. It must be explored experimentally. So this is the idea that we cannot just theorize uh, by sitting in our armchair, but we need to go to the lab and explore what uh, rational economic behavior is about. So this, this was in the uh, autobiographical note of the 1994 Nobel Prize. And then another uh, recent Nobel Prize, Al Roth, said the reason why Selton's contributions constitute uh, one scientific career and not two separate ones is that he's been a leader in developing theoretical implications of how games might be played by ide ideally rational players but then also when these theories fail to, descriptive, to be descriptive of observed behavior in undertaking the related endeavor of proposing more descriptive theories. So typically what happens is when you take a theoretical model to the lab, it fails, but uh, partially. And then the idea is to propose other more uh, descriptive theories of behavior, uh, which a lot of the times are based on psychology. And this is the idea that we're going to try to uh, establish in today's talk. Um, so, what is the relationship between uh, theory and experiments? The, the main idea is that um, there, is, there should be a, a bi-directional flow between theory and experiments. Um, what does theory provide? Theory provides assumptions. It provides a set of assumptions that must be satisfied for, something, for a phenomena to be observed. It provides a lot of internal consistency. So, we know a lot about what... How, how the structure works, and also is a benchmark for judging in the experimental data. A lot of the times we study a phenomena, we don't know what to expect. But theory often provides a benchmark uh, through testable hypothesis of what, uh, what, what we are expecting. Uh, experiments based on theory, what they provide is evidence on which assumptions fail or which assumptions are satisfied. So we need to know which assumptions uh, work and which ones are violated. And then from there on create other types of theories which are based on more realistic assumptions. And then it also suggests how the theory fails. 
So it suggests in which ways the theory might not be strong, might be weak, and how we can um, improve that from that point. So in, to some extent, it, it, it takes the weak points of theory in terms of predicting um, behavior. But there is a big contrast between theory and experiments, and for, for many years these two disciplines were enemies or very, very different. So one way to, to bridge the gap between the two is rationality. So the main assumption of most theoretical models is rationality. And as we've seen in the first talk this morning, a, a lot of the um, biases and heuristics that he describes were violations of rationality. And so the, the main idea is to introduce some psychological concepts into mainstream economic theory to try to describe economic behavior in more realistic ways. And, but the dialogue between theory and experiments is very important for the discipline because it can generate new theory, new experiments, and be more realistic. So, so, so this is the main idea of why, why experiments are important in our area. Um, um, and of course, here there are other types of research, like uh, empirical research, field experiments, and so on. Um, what are the elements of theory experiments, and, and how can we um, talk about that? So theory, well, the theory, there are game theoretical models. These are very good for describing a specific situation. Things like how many players or how many buyers do we have, how many sellers do we have, which information they have, how, what alternatives do they have in each point of time. So it's very good for formalizing a specific situation. And then we have solution concepts. Solution concepts means is a way of predicting which type of behavior we typically expect. This is often based on the concept of equilibrium or some variety of equilibrium concepts. And this is how theory sort of argues about the phenomenon. On the other hand, experiments are very different and also they're very different from empirical work because of control. So control allows us to isolate many of the effects we're not interested and, and see which of the assumptions are required for a model to hold and to, to see that uh, in the laboratory. So we can make artificial markets, we can make artificial institutions, and we can control these assumptions in the lab. Um, another important thing about experiments is randomization. Randomization is key to establish causal effects. So the, the, the idea of randomization, which we can do in experiments, is to allocate randomly subjects into different treatments. And, and, that, and in that idea, then we forget about everything else that we're not interested. So often in empirical work, something we, a problem we face is endogeneity. Here, if we believe in this randomization, uh, we don't need to worry about um, econometric and statistical problems so much because of the randomization. So the idea is with randomization and control, a lot of the times we can achieve um, causal comparisons between treatments um, which have uh, some sort of an interpretation uh, which is meaningful. And then the other key thing about experiments is that the experimental design, the, the, what we call the design, how we design this in the lab, is important because we are generating our own data. So this is very different from empirical research where you collect existing data. This is a situation where your design, the way you design it, will make an influence on what kind of data you get. So if the data is not, so if your design is not appropriate, you'll get the wrong data. So experimenters will spend a long time just with the design, which is the best option for, for designing the model. 
So some thoughts about theory and experiment are the following. So the first thing is this, um, this idea of Schotter that he describes the types of theories, the main types of theories. So one type of theories are predictive theories. So most of you might have heard about Nash equilibrium. Well, Nash equilibrium typically makes very specific predictions, ex ante. So very ex ante, you know how a game will be played, how a market will be played. And you know ex ante, what, what are the predictions? But the problem with this is that these may fail to explain the data behavior well. On the other hand, there are theories which are very explanatory. Um, so other types of theories, for example, level K could be a theory like that, which make very good exposed predictions. But the problem is that ex ante, they may not make tight predictions, often because they have more degrees of freedom. And then uh, ex ante, you have something undefined. So what can we test in the lab? Which type of theories can we test? And what can we test in the lab? Well, um, predictive theories make typically point predictions. No? This person is going to buy X amount at this price. This is a point prediction. No? We know a price, we know a quantity, and, and we know that prediction. One thing we can do is get data from the lab, estimate the parameters, and then test this uh, in a very quantitative way. But often this fails, right? because it is very complicated. Another thing we can do is comparative statics. Comparative statics means see how a parameter changes and see whether the direction of the change is appropriate, as predicted. So this is something which is much more important to verify whether the predictions of the theory are confirmed in a qualitative way. So that, that's, that's important and it tests the qualitative um, features of the data. Um, so, theory, what does theory provide? It provides a guide to experiments, some sort of a benchmark. Um, often we don't know what to expect. No? If we design a new market, uh, we want to design a new market for Uber, we have no idea what to expect. But if we have a theory to make some kind of prediction, we, we at least have a benchmark. It may fail, but we have a benchmark. And so if it fails, hopefully it leads to new insights where we can see where it fails and then generate other theories from that. And importantly, this can be used to guide policy decisions. So policymakers increasingly use experiments to see how situations will be uh, realized in real life. Okay. okay, so that's a little bit clear. So, so this is the main general introduction of why we do experiments, um, why, what, what kind of things we're looking at. And now we'll look at one specific experiment which comes from my research where we test the comparative statics of quite a complex theory, and we try to see whether we see that in the lab, where in the lab we typically have students. So, so the paper is called Supply Function Competition, Private Information and Market Power, and the work we studied is joint work with Jordi Brandt and Xavier Vives. Uh, Jordi's around, maybe not in this session, but he's around today, so, so we'll talk about this and I'll try to explain it in a very simple way. But to sum up, this is, we generate a market in the lab which resembles either treasury auctions, open market operations, which are central banks issuing liquidity, or wholesale electricity markets. So we try to generate a very complex market in the lab and see how students behave with private information and market power. And we try to see how a specific theoretical model predicts behavior. 
and in which ways it fails. So what I described at the introduction is exactly what we try to do in our specific case. So let me start with a brief motivation. So what we do is um, we study in the lab a, a particular market which is representative of quite a few situations. We try to generalize. The situations could be liquidity auctions. These are central bank auctions trying to increase money supply or reduce money supply. Treasury auctions, wholesale electricity markets, which indirectly they affect the, uh, the prices we pay for electricity and also markets for pollution permits. So these markets, they have a common structure, which we'll try to describe. The common structure of these markets are two things, well, three things. First, incomplete information. So typically, bidders, either banks or uh, electricity firms or pollution, pollution firms, they typically do not know, exactly the value of an asset, or they don't know their cost for a variety of reasons. I'll, I'll give an example of one reason. And the other thing is that they compete in a particular way, in what's called demand or supply schedules. These are one very specific type of auction. In these auctions, rather than bidding a price or bidding a quantity, they bid for each quantity how much they're willing to pay or how much they're willing to buy this particular unit for. So in other words, they, they submit a schedule. Right? So in, in, for each quantity, they say how much they're willing to buy this quantity for, how much they're willing to sell it for. And these markets are characterized by being very complex. So there are very few empirical studies which study these markets because they're quite complex, especially if there is incomplete information. So what we try to do is to establish a relationship between incomplete information or informational frictions and market power. We have a theoretical model which we have very from point predictions, and we try to see whether we see that in the lab with students or not, and in which, which ways it deviates. And so this is very important for, for policy. So policymakers, central banks are very concerned about this issue, but also competition authorities. So competition authorities are very concerned to see when they see a high price, is it because they're colluding, or is it because of private information? If it's because of private information, it's not bad, because it's not collusion. But if it is because they're colluding, that's something which can be penalized and, and can, has to be tackled through competition policy. So that's something that we, we try to, to understand. So let's go through an example. This example comes from central banks, from open market operations. So here, what we have is we have um, open market operations are very important for providing liquidity to the financial system. And in the end, open market operations determine the level of interest rates. So they're very important for the whole financial system. Um, and the way banks bid for this liquidity is through an auction. The auction works in the way that we described it in the experiment. Um, and these auctions are typically organized by central banks. So this is an issue of importance for, for central banks. Uh, the auction is of a uniform price type. That means that each bidder can bid multiple prices, but then at the end of the auction, everyone pays the same price. Um, and the asset that they're buying, which could be some sort of uh, liquidity, it has an uncertain value. They don't know the value when they bid. Um, and I'll explain why it might be uncertain. 
So bank bidders, what they do is they maximize their profits, as is typical in economics and finance, and they submit these demand schedules. So demand schedule is, for each quantity, a price, the, the maximum price they're willing to pay for that unit. And then there's an auctioneer, in that case is the central bank, which selects a price which clears the market. That price that, that clears the market is, the, is uniform, is the same for all bidders. Other types of auctions are discriminatory, where everyone pays the price they bid. And the valuation of bidders is uncertain and has two components. One which is common, is absolutely common among all bidders, so this could be related to interest rates, because interest rates are the same for all banks. But another component might be idiosyncratic. If it's idiosyncratic, it could be because each bank has individual liquidity needs. So each bank has uncertainty about the future liquidity of the bank. You don't know exactly what will be the future liquidity need of a bank. And this idiosyncratic component might be correlated with other banks or uncorrelated with other banks. For example, in times of crisis, this correlation typically increases, um, while in times, in normal times, the correlation is, is null. And so another example, which has the same structure, but is, is different in terms of setting, could be wholesale electricity auctions. These are the auctions that producers of electricity bid for this, supplying this electricity to the market. Um, and it has exactly the same setting in terms of competition and information. Um, so we designed an experiment based on, um, on wholesale electricity auctions, where instead of demanding the asset, they supply the asset. But they also have incomplete information with the same components. Okay, so why do we do a lab experiment? Right, so that's very important. Why do we do a lab experiment? First, because our goal is to understand the relationship between information of frictions, incomplete information, and market power. So it's very difficult, using empirical research, to observe private information. You cannot observe that. That's uh, private, and so it's not disclosed. So we cannot understand anything about private information from observing the data, at least directly. However, in the lab, we can induce private information artificially. And so we can control for the biggest private information. So something which is very difficult um, empirically, in the lab, we can control for it. Um, also, um, the stakes are very high in these markets. Now you imagine uh, trying to do a policy experiment with uh, the central bank auctions. The stakes are too high, right? So the central bank is not willing to try experiments on the auction format, on the type of information, and so on. So the lab is a good um, economic uh, testbed for this theory uh, because well, the stakes are with students, and so we can understand something about the market. Something complete because we, we are aware that the behavior of students may not be the same as the behavior of banks. Right? So the, the big problem with experiments that we always criticize for is external validity. So how can we... Uh, say that, you know, something we observe with students replicates to professionals. Um, so we'll talk more about this at the end. So let's go to our experiment. So our experiment follows very closely what I've described to now, but with more structure. Right? So what we do is we, we provide experimental evidence of behavior and outcomes. Here outcomes we mean market prices, profits of the following features. So we have 
the competition environment is a few sellers, a few bidders. In this case, they're sellers. All these markets, uh, they are not, they, they are oligopolistic. There are only a few big players. There are only a few big banks which bid for, for in treasury auctions or, or these kinds of auctions. Also electricity, there are only a few players which are very big. The competition and supply function, uh, meaning that for each quantity, each of the firms supplies, says which is the maximum price, the, sorry, the minimum price they're willing to sell that unit. I'll show you graphically the way that looks. And then it's a uniform price auction. Once the auctioneer determines the price, everyone sells at the same price. And now the information environment. So bidders are uncertain about their costs. So here's not about their value, but about their costs, exactly the same. Um, and also the cost of other bidders. So they don't know, they don't fully know their costs. But they receive a signal about their costs. A signal is some sort of a clue about their costs. Um, and the signal can be of high or low precision. So it can be a very precise signal or a very imprecise signal. This is in bold because that's one of our treatments. Okay, so, so this is one of our treatments. On the other hand, the costs of these bidders can be decomposed into a common component. Oh, remember in the auction example, that was the interest rate. Uh, and an idiosyncratic component, these would be the liquidity needs. Um, and these costs can be correlated or uncorrelated. Um, so these are, again, two of our treatments. And, and then we'll see that we have a theoretical model which gives different predictions for these four treatments. These, well, two by two, so we have four combinations of treatments. And what we see in the lab, what we want to see in the lab is whether these predictions in these four cases are confirmed with the data. Let's uh, skip the related theory. Let's briefly go to the theoretical background. Very, very briefly. I'll, I'll just have this slide with equations and then there will be no more. Um, so the, the, the model is a model of Beavis 2011 based, uh, based published in Econometrica. It's a static game, meaning that it's only played once. This is important. You'll see that in the lab, we do it a bit differently, and I'll explain why. And the profit is a very simple profit. It's just price minus marginal cost minus some quadratic transaction cost. Okay. Um, P is the market price. Xi are the units supplied to the market. How many units I supply to the market. And then um, theta i is the random cost shock. A lambda is some transaction cost parameter. It's just uh, a typical quadratic uh, profit function. Now, uh, theta i, which is theta i, remember, is the component of the cost we don't know. It's distributed normally with some variance. So we, we don't precisely know our cost. Um, cost may be correlated or uncorrelated. Remember I said that, in, for example, in crisis times, a lot of the times this correlation increases, where in normal times it decreases. And then each seller has private information. So each seller receives a clue, a signal about its cost. And this, um, this signal has some noise, which is also normally distributed. We can measure the relative precision of a signal with the letter, we call it phi. And then the seller strategy, as I said, is a schedule, which means for each quantity, which is the minimum price I'm willing to supply this quantity. So it's a, some form, and then demand is inelastic. Right? That's, the that's the first 
a large lightweight equation. So this is our model, and we have very tight predictions for these models. So this makes very clear point predictions. So we know what is the prediction for the supply schedule for each seller. We know the prediction of the market price, prediction of profits. We know absolutely everything from the model. So what are the theoretical predictions? The theoretical predictions are the following. The idea is when costs are not correlated, the market price conveys no information about costs. So when there is no correlation among costs, let's say in normal times, I think about the market price and that brings no correlation about costs. Those of you that are economists, when costs are uncorrelated, there's no adverse selection. When costs are correlated, um, I can think about the market price, and the market price tells me, if the market price is high, I must think that the cost of other people must be high too, so that means that my cost is high. So when there is um, cost correlated, there is adverse selection. So the main prediction of the model is that market outcomes with interdependent costs, meaning private information and correlation, are less competitive than markets with uncorrelated costs. We have a very, very clear prediction. We even have the numerical values of that prediction. Okay, so, and the idea is adverse selection. So this case has higher adverse selection than the other case. And then we just try to see whether we see that in the lab. So, so this is the theory. Then I'll show you more predictions. And then we see how do we transform this complex theory into an experiment. So the experimental design is as follows. We do a, what's called a two-by-two-between subject design. And what we're interested in is in two things. We're interested in uncorrelated costs versus positively correlated costs. And we're interested in low, or in, this means um, high precision, of, well, one case is high precision of the private signal, the other case is low precision of the private signal. So we want to see more precise markets, what do we get? Less precise markets, what do we get? Uncorrelated costs, what we get? Positively correlated costs, what we get? And the interaction. The interaction is, it is this term here. Okay. So this is our, um, our treatment. And then the parameters are chosen so that these two treatments have the same degree of market power. Okay. So, so they have the same degree of market power. Then we have to make the parameters. But let me show you the theoretical predictions graphically. So on the vertical axis, we have ask prices. These are the prices that the seller offers electricity to the market. On the horizontal axis, we have quantity. This is the amount that is offered to the market. Um, each of these lines plotted is what's called supply function. For each quantity that I supply to the market, what's the minimum price that I'm willing to sell it for? So the theoretical prediction when costs are uncorrelated is this black line. Okay? And we see that it's quite flat. Um, the two theoretical predictions when costs are positively correlated, they're a bit different, but they're very similar, they're much, much steeper. Okay? Um, and so in these two treatments, in the red and yellow treatments, we should see higher market power. No? Steeper supply functions mean higher prices, higher profits than when, when costs are uncorrelated. So we're, we're trying to test this difference, whether we see that in these two treatments, we see higher market power 
than in this treatment. What's the difference between the red treatment and the yellow treatment? Well, the red treatment has high correlation and low precision of the signal. Whether the yellow treatment has low correlation and high precision of the signal. Okay, so they're a bit different in, in, in their composition. So we can see, for example, if we see any difference in these two treatments, it will be because the reaction to one factor is more important than the reaction to the other factor. Okay. Um, let, me, um, let me briefly explain how we did the experiment. So the experiment, we did six independent groups of 12 members each, which had four markers of three sellers in each of the four treatments. So one subject participating in one treatment did not participate in the other treatment. In the end, we had 288 subjects in the main experiment. We also did some robustness and so on. And then we, we played this market for 25 rounds. What does that mean? Why do we do it 25 rounds if the experiment is static? We do it with 25 rounds because, well, first, it's very difficult. But second is an established fact that equilibrium does not appear at the moment in this game. So we typically need to repeat to foster learning. Um, so, but we, we made sure that still it's not a repeated game, a one, one shot. So we, there's some experimental techniques for that. Um, so let me just show you briefly how the experiment looks in practice. This is the way the experiment looks. So we, everything is on the computer in the lab. Now we decided we have a lab so we could do this experiment. And we have, so we tell you the round, 1 to 25, you have some points. So these, these experiments are incentivized to foster um, that you kind of try to um, behave as, as maximizing profits. Then at each round, first we tell the subjects their signal. We say, your signal is such. Um, of course, subjects know, read the instructions, and we test that they understand, and so we give them, you know, we, we, we check that they understand. So we give them a signal, and then we ask them, that's your decision. Construct your supply schedule. So we say, well, give me the offer price for unit one, give me the offer price for unit two, and then here we plot of these supply schedules, these linear supply schedules. And then they, they can change it, and then when they are satisfied, they say, confirm. Once everyone has made a decision, we, get, we give them feedback. The feedback we give them is how, many, how much profits they obtain in each round. Okay. So in the result of this round is 16,393. And then we see, well, your revenue has been such, your production cost has been such, your transaction cost, and so your total profit has been that. We also give them feedback about the market. So we say, okay, you're seller one, you're the blue one, but the other two sellers have done that. Um, and then we have how many units are sold, what are the profits, and so on. So this is the, the interface, computer interface that we use for the experiment. Um, okay, let me just briefly go to the main graph. So remember the first graph I showed you about the theoretical predictions. I'll now show you what happened. So the theoretical predictions are straight, uh, um, continuous lines, whether the experimental predictions are dashed. So let's, let's look at this. This is the main graph of, of the paper. So we've said that these two treatments have adverse selection, have some sort of correlation among costs, and they should, we should see higher market power. 
Let's see what we observe in reality. Well, the experimental equivalent to the red treatment is the brown one around there, right? T06L. We see a very big difference between the experimental prediction and the theoretical prediction, massive prediction. Okay? The first thing that we understand from that is that subjects do not understand adverse selection coming from correlation among costs. Those, this in economics is nothing else than the winner's curse. So it's been observed in other more simple settings. We also see, which is very good for the theory, that when costs are uncorrelated, the experimental supply functions, the green and blue, are very similar to the black line. So the, the theoretical model predicts very well when costs are uncorrelated. It is, in some sense, it's a much simpler economic environment. And then the interaction effect, which is this case, we see that it's steeper than, uh, it's steeper and has higher market power than when um, costs are uncorrelated, but it's far from its theoretical prediction. Okay? So what we understand from that is that subjects, and, and this is good because this confirms that experimentally, we see that informational frictions lead to market power, but the underreaction to the correlation is large in relation to the, to the reaction to the precision of the signal. So in other words, they understand the two sources of information of frictions, private information, which comes from a relative precision of the signal, and correlation. They do not understand that correlation leads to adverse selection. That's the winner's curse. But they do understand that less precise signals should lead to higher market power. So they understand something about signal precision leading to market power, but they do not understand that correlation leads to higher market power. So to conclude, oops. I just want to go to the last slide. Okay, well, I can tell you without looking. So the, the main conclusions of the paper is the following. We've uh, tested a very complex model in the lab, which is very difficult to, to test, either doing a policy experiment or doing empirical research. So we've done a complex experiment, gone to the lab. That's already a contribution, because not many people do complex experiments. And what we've seen is that the theoretical model predicts well when costs are uncorrelated. And that's, that's good, because that's a benchmark. But what we see is that informational frictions lead to market power, as the theoretical model says, in terms of comparative status, in terms of qualitative predictions. But the subjects underreact under to correlation, while they do understand, to some extent, that the precision of the signal matters for market power. And this is important for policymakers in two respects. The first is that um, policymakers should be concerned if they see a high price because of the results of the experiment might indicate collusion. So, so that's something important. And the second thing, we, the, the other policy implication we derive is for a policymaker that wants to favor consumers, it should provide more public information because that would foster more competitive outcomes. 
So providing more uh, public information um, should help uh, consumers in increasing consumer surplus by providing more, more uh, efficient outcomes uh, in that respect. This is just mainly what we find. And we also see no limitations of the model and which ways the model can be made more um, descriptive, no? which is perhaps to tackle this correlation uh, effect and so on. Okay? So that's the main idea. So if anyone wants to questions, I think we have time for one or two questions. The students in quantitative subjects, so like engineering, economics, uh, maths. Mm. Mm. But um, so so partially yes, partially no. Uh, so it's true; it's a very complex experiment. That's why we're not too worried about point predictions. We're not too worried that the deviation is large. What we care is only the qualitative effect, because we understand that there is some people which do not understand the experiment. In fact, we see it. Some people make losses and. They don't learn over time. But what we see is that one of the treatments with correlation has higher market power than the others. So that means that there is some, under, some understanding there that, that which does not come from adverse selection and correlation, but comes with the precision of the signals. Yeah, so we do. So what we do is we give the instructions, then we, have, we give them a test. Uh, of whether they understood the key point of the instructions and they get it right or wrong. And then if not, we go and explain. And then they play two trial rounds, which we comment how it went and so on, before the experiment. So we kind of control, but yeah. but that's the big concern. It's too complex, perhaps. That's everything you want to know. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and uh, this is not the, the, the same system, 
different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me start with the second question. The second question, no, we don't, um, because it, it abstracts from the, let's say, institutional details of each of the markets. But what we do, what we see is that generally electricity markets mostly work with these uniform price auctions with schedules. Just kind of some, an abstraction of, uh, I also have to say that we haven't presented here, but we did one treatment with the traders from the electricity market in Spain. And what we saw is that we saw less competitive behavior than students immediately. So they immediately realized how to get fast market power. But we didn't see, we don't, the problem with, uh, with, um, with the electricity is that we don't, we didn't have enough subjects to test it, right? Because these people are experts and their opportunity cost is, is very high to play the game. So we don't give too much value to the points, but immediately they realize how to. Uh, the second question is very important, uh, which is that now uh, central banks, they offer all kinds of information and so on. But here we're not so much concerned about this public information. What we're concerned is that each bank may not know their own value when they bid because they don't know fully their electricity, they don't fully know their liquidity needs, their future liquidity needs. So at the time of bidding, they may not know whether they they might face tomorrow a higher need than another. Or another thing is they might not know if they want to resell the asset, they don't know the resale value. So even though they know all the public information possible about the central bank, but they still might face incomplete information about the future, about future resale or future liquidity needs of their own bank. So in that sense, there's still incomplete information. But yes, public information is extremely high. No? And what the model says, if you want more competitive outcomes, you should even provide more. So it's, it's in favor of transparency. Okay, I think we have to finish, close the session. Thank you very much for the two sessions. Thanks for listening. Isade, inspiring futures. Yeah.